Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Alexis Conran here on Talk Radio. Thank you for downloading this podcast. This week, I am joined by James Meadway, former advisor to John McDonnell, and Claire Cohen from The Telegraph. We talk about uh, the Labour leadership election, the reflection uh, the Labour have taken so far and what went wrong. Uh, we're also talking about the reshuffle. Uh, Sajid Javid, is it a power grab by number 10? And I'm joined in the studio by Sam Lowe. And we talk about the EU trade deal or the non-EU trade deal. All that to come. Enjoy the show. When will it end? When will it end, Alexis? You know, April. how how long can it's we... Which year? Which year? Exactly. <laughs> April 2021. I mean, how long can we still calling carry on calling this a period of reflection is my real question. Well, uh, th- that's uh, funny you mention yeah. that because next to you, uh, Mr James Meadway, is part of the committee... Is it a committee? Uh, commission. It's commission. Commission. Please. Grand, so grand, so, it? so it tell, tell us what you're involved well, in. Well, this, this is this is the commission on... Uh, really, it's the commission on what went wrong and, and there, there are several answers to that and many people have come up with their own answers to that, some which are relatively superficial. This is an attempt to sort of say, get people from all different bits of the Labour Party, so Ed Miliband, uh, Lucy Powell, different different parts of it, to say, OK, we need to learn some lessons from uh, 2019 in particular, get into the data a bit, find out what it was that people were saying, how do we learn from this, how do we present it to the Labour Party as a whole, and say, regardless of which particular faction you come from uh, you know this is something that we can all agree on and how we move forward from here so that's the plan so that commission report will be out uh, god it's going to be March or so uh, I think the plan is to get there so it's part of a period of reflection I must say um, one of the sort of slightly disappointing bits of leadership campaign is that it hasn't really involved very much reflection I don't think I think partly the format partly the length of time it's not involved the kind of depth of conversation I think needs to happen about what the Labour Party does with itself now it's a period of deflection isn't it uh, that's, oh, that's very good. That's very good. Thank oh. you. Did you just think of it? That's, uh, that's <laughs> very good. Let's just say yes, I did. <laughs> Am I that quick-witted? No, but come on. I mean, there's one glaring elephant in the room here that is to blame for not just one, but two general election losses, and it's Jeremy Corbyn. And who is going to be no, the first person to break ranks and say that? Well, it does. Well, lots of people have said that, but I don't think it quite works because the 2017 is the biggest increase in Labour's vote share since 1945. This is the election that was supposed to be the catastrophic defeat. Theresa May was going to cruise to victory. Theresa May was a lot more popular, if you believe the polls, than Boris Johnson has ever been entering that election and didn't manage to deliver a majority. So it was an exceptional result. What you have to explain, I think, is 2017 and 2019, the contrast between the, the two events with the same leader, we're saying more or less the same things. Now, I have my own version of what went wrong in all of this. Part of it is actually Jeremy Corbyn and what happened to him over the intervening two years. But there's lots and lots of things going on. And I think we do need a bit of time to go through that and work it all out. What's your take on Lord Ashcroft's report this week? That, oh, which, yeah. which showed, I mean, and this is my kind of broad brush take mm. on it, so do tell me if I've got this wrong, but it basically showed that party members think that Jeremy Corbyn has been the most successful leader in recent times, whereas voters think three times elected Tony Blair. Does that not just show a huge gulf between the party and the... 
voters, the people. It's, it's a gulf that we, we partly closed in, in 2017, didn't close quite enough to win. I think a few more weeks of campaign, we would in fact have, have got a, a slender majority for that government. And it's it's the what went wrong in those two years, I think, is the question for the Labour Party. I, I don't think, I mean, look, you say that, you know, are we going to have continuity, Corbyn, or not? I think if you look at the spread of candidates, all of them, except that the Labour Party now has to say some of the stuff that Jeremy Corbyn was talking about. All of them, except we can't go around saying, actually, we're going to do a bit of austerity. I mean, even this government we now have, this Conservative government is talking mm. about spending more money. They've just sacked the Chancellor in order, basically, to try and spend more money. So the context has shifted uh, uh, very markedly over that period of time. And I think every single candidate standing to that extent represents a kind of continuity Corbynism. I'd like to get your thoughts on, uh, not necessarily on Sajid Javid's departure, but this idea that um, number 10 and number 11 are going to be sharing the sort of special advisers and basically are going to be governed centrally from number 10. Is this a good idea, uh, frustrating as though it is, but is it a better way to do things rather than having that constant battle between number 10 saying we'd like to do this, number 11 saying... Well, you can't afford it. Is it a better idea to join those two institutions? Well, let, let's get, let me give you an example. Labour about three years ago set out a plan for the reforming of the Treasury, rethinking the Treasury was the name of the document. And you have to take this through processes. You have to get people involved in what's the nature of the Treasury, what its job is, what its role is. And you have to do it in a, in a constructive, positive and thoughtful way. You don't just announce something like the government have done. So if you're asking me, no, it's not a good idea because it's just effectively somebody like Dominic Cummings and the Prime Minister deciding to get together and do something without any thought to what the implications, the structure and the future relationship would be, perhaps under different uh, prime ministers and different uh, chancellors. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that a different prime minister has to maintain that model. Surely what they're, what they're showing is that, um, you know, we've got an 80-strong majority, the people have returned us with an 80-strong majority. We want to get these things done, uh, uh, the levelling up, the spending money on HS2, basically spending too much money that number 11 would have probably said, no, unfortunately, we're not going to write you that cheque. And what they've done, they've said, look, we're going to override number 11 and actually get these things done. And if it means paying, uh, you know, paying more money than we promised in the manifesto, then so be it. No, it's not to say that you don't do it, but you don't do it on a whim. You have to have some structure. But what makes you think that it's on a whim? What, what you know? Says, well, well, number one, they've only just gone into government. Dominic Cummings has all these sort of ideas um, that just come out of thin air. He's sort of, he's sort of like a stream of consciousness, basically. And the bottom line is it, you have to be responsible. Now, can you imagine... Let's turn this on its head. Can you imagine if a Labour government came in and said, right, we're going to effectively scrap the Treasury, we're going to put all the responsibility in number 10 with an advisor, number 10. Let's say at the time it was going to be Al, you know, Alastair Campbell or some other advisor. The press, the, the Telegraph, the Times, the Sun, the Mail, the Express, they would have all gone bonkers and said, here is, is Labour trying to completely rewrite the rules of the Constitution. That's the point I'm making. It's about a way of going about it in a structured, positive and constructive way, not simply on the whim of an incoming Prime Minister who doesn't know, uh, it, it, you know, uh, one end of an economic textbook to the other.
whilst people sort of always say, you know, the general argument is Brexit's going to be bad for the UK economy, you are going to get these stories of mm. investment that happens because of Brexit. I mean, my job exists because of Brexit. Brexit does create jobs. No one wanted to talk about trade beforehand. You know, certain customs officers, there's going to be this whole industry that Immigration officers, yeah. Yeah, so Brexit will create some jobs. It's just a, it's the question is whether it will create more than there were before. Than we and that's, and that's And that's where... Or, or than we would have had or that we would have in the future. And, that, and that's more difficult to answer. Dare I tackle, before we go to the break, um, the, this idea, again, that's been... I think it was peddled by Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, to start with, but it keeps rearing its head, much to the, 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 the chagrin of quite a lot of uh, trade experts. The idea that we can lower tariffs and therefore goods will be uh, a lot mm -hmm. cheaper... Uh, dare I dare I take us to that? Uh... We can talk about that. It's, so it's this idea that after we've left the EU, we can just remove all tariffs, which are taxes on imports, mm -hmm. and then we'll be able to import food. He, he uses, as, I think, as clothes as well as an shoes example. as well. Shoes, got more some cheaply. Sort of shoe fetish. Thing. And, I, and this is this is a proper discussion to have and it's something that the government seems to have reneged on so before they were going to pretty much do that and that but now mm -hmm. they're consulting on tariffs being more or less the same as they were when we were in the eu as, as the default because they want some leverage in negotiations but this idea that removing tariffs leads to lower prices is an interesting one but it has to be taken in the context of brexit so in the context of brexit we are going to be leaving the eu and everything we buy from the eu will be more expensive than it was before even if tariffs are zero so why is that? Because there will be new customs procedures. Right. There will just be new. So bureaucracy. even though tariffs are zero, the fact that you're going to have to fill in a few forms and uh, it's, it's going to be it's more going to expensive make, than make it now. More expensive. So so everything we buy from the EU will be more expensive than it was before. So that's something to bear in mind as a countervailing pull on this idea that prices are going to. So fall. as a lever, I would my argument to that will be well, we'll get stuff from somewhere else. We're going to do new exciting trade deals with the rest of the world. Well, well, we, well we can, but the, the fact is the EU's big and nearby. We're always going to buy quite a lot mm. from there, and also. So there's just consumer preferences. You can't instantly substitute a product you like that you buy from Italy from uh, with one from China because mm -hmm. you, you, there's a reason you buy that brand. There's other things. And then the other issue to take into account is that Brexit has led to a depreciation of sterling against currencies around the world. So it's weaker. So it's actually more expensive to buy things from elsewhere. So if you, if, if you think... Uh, so, so I, I don't know what sterling is off the top of my head now, but I know it's much weaker than it was before the yeah. referendum. So actually to import something from abroad costs you more now. So that's so, so. My point on this idea that tariffs will lower prices is that I don't think it will lower prices. It might stop them from rising so much if you were to remove right. all tariffs, which is a good thing. But then you also have this question of when you do reduce those tariffs, who pockets? Do do, do the people who import it? Do the producers actually pass on those pass savings? On the savings. To, so this probably gets well, right into your territory. Yeah. Was, pass on the savings to the consumers because there's actually very little evidence to suggest that's true. No. Because so so it's more likely that they'll pocket it, and also in the context of where they're having to deal with all of this new trade friction resulting from Brexit, they might use it to pay for that. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. They can they will pocket it and using even though it might be a valid excuse or just an, a, a sort of an optics excuse of it costs us more to do business because of the forms, the red yeah. tape, etc, etc. I have no affiliation for the BBC and I don't quite understand the animosity with which it is being uh, uh, attacked. Um, I know that Number 10 and the front cover of the Sunday Times are saying that uh, Number 10 have decided that's the end of the licence fee. I'm not 
quite sure they have that power to decide it right now. There's there's a seven-year uh, review, and who knows? In seven years, they might not be in government. Um, but I, I think I would stop and think long and hard before people decide what happens to the licence fee uh, for two reasons, really. Uh, one is that this argument ha has been accompanied by the fact that the BBC stars get paid too much, um, according to the, some newspapers and the view of some people. Um, again, we need to stop and think that, that this is the, the sort of the going price. And just because they're working for a public broadcaster doesn't mean that they should get paid less because they're on a public broadcaster and it's public money. People need to get paid whatever the market value is. That's kind of how market works. Uh, this whole bizarre idea from that front cover of the Sunday Times today that they are, these presenters are making their careers on the back of public money because they're on the BBC. So therefore, they shouldn't be doing any outside work like speaking engagements or working uh, on other broadcasters. I think what they're referring to there is, uh, for example, uh, Gary Lineker, who does Match of the Day, but he also works for BT Sport. Um, they're saying, well, that's unfair because Gary Lineker became who he was on the back of public money. Therefore, he shouldn't make more money from his celebrity status from someone else. As if just because he's on the BBC, somehow the public own him and should regulate how much he gets paid and who he gets to work for. I mean, think about those words that just came out of my mouth. This is ridiculous. To, to, to try and impose that on people. And also, it seems to be lost on, on, on this uh, the people who are commenting on this article. They're saying that people who have come into celebrity status on the back of public money should not be earning any money from other jobs. But they fail to realise the people who are saying this coming straight out of number 10, that's exactly what every MP does. Boris Johnson was foreign secretary whilst at the same time earning what he referred to as chicken feed of 200, over £200,000 for writing a column in The Telegraph. I'm sorry, but the same institution, i.e. number 10, cannot come out and attack BBC presenters for earning money outside the BBC when the Prime Minister was being paid by the public purse, i.e. exactly the same as what they're claiming the BBC stars are doing, and earning over £200,000, which he referred to as chicken feed, to write a Telegraph column. I mean, I know that we've entered an age where, you know, we, don't, we no longer look at the acts, but we look at who is carrying them out before we decide to condemn them or not. But this is beyond hypocrisy. And anybody who can't see that hypocrisy, I'm afraid that you, you, are, you are being blinded by your political affiliations or which side of the fence you're on. So that's my one gripe about the, um, the, the abolition of the, uh, the licence fee. And the other side, um, you know, everybody's talking about subscription service. And... <sighs> What I'd like to point out is that look at look at Netflix, for example. Netflix are no one quite knows exactly the financial status of Netflix, but I'm telling you, it doesn't really add up, no matter how many millions of subscribers they have. But you're not going to get the ability to make very expensive programs that are not necessarily commercially viable if you go into a subscription. Uh, type model. So your big, you know, planet Earth, those things are not... Why Why is the, Why do, are other networks not making planet Earth and blue planet and all those? 
The answer is they're extremely expensive and they never make back their money. Right? That's why the BBC can still do them. Now, some people say, well, I don't care, I don't watch them. You're entitled to that. But, you know, decriminalisation, non-paying of the licence fee, I think that's a good discussion to have. But the idea that you're just going to scrap the licence fee, I just think it's for the birds. But maybe that's just my opinion. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Leave us a review. And remember, you can tune in to Talk Politics every Sunday from 10 to 1.